The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to pick up where Pastor Rockin left off last week, verse 7. We're going to read through to verse 16. Now, our text for this evening stops at the end of verse 11. We'll pick up verse 12 next week. Ephesians 4, verse 7 to 16, focusing tonight on verses 7 to 11. This is the Word of God. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attained the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, bless us now with your word to our hearts, that our faith might be built up, our desire to serve you might be increased, grant us zeal for your kingdom, grant us delight uh, in your church, and grant us to be in awe of the head of the church, Jesus Christ, the giver of every good and perfect gift. We thank you, we praise you in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Pastor Rockin showed us last week how Paul uh, urged us to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And the foundation for that calling was the blessed unity we experience in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, Paul is developing that argument, and he says that unity that we have in the church is expressed further in the gifts that Christ gives to his church. In other words, the diversity of giftedness found within the church of Christ is to be utilized to further the unity of the body of Christ. Now, notice how our short section begins and finishes tonight. Verse 7 and verse 11 speak about the gifts and graces that the risen and ascended Christ has given to his church. Verse 7, the start, verse 11, gifts and graces. 
In the middle of that, we have verses 8 to 10, which speak to us. They give a description of the giver of those gifts. It's the risen and ascended Christ in all his fullness, in all his victory, in all his glory who gives gifts to his church. And so we understand tonight it is from the fullness of Christ in his victorious ascension that he gives gifts to the church. It's from the fullness of Christ in all his victory, in his glory, in his wonderful ascension back to the right hand of the the Father on high that he has given gifts to the church which we are to utilize and enjoy for his glory. So we'll see that really tonight in the sections I've spoken of, verses 7 and 11, which speak about the gifts that Christ has given to the church. I'm going to deal with that secondarily. Uh, First, I want to speak about the ascended and victorious Christ, who we find there described in verses 8 to 10, the ascended and victorious Christ. The flow of the passage is a little bit difficult to understand. If you're simply reading it through, we find a conjunction at the verse, uh, first part of verse 7, but, and then there's a therefore at the beginning of verse 8. What exactly is going on in the text? Well, as Pastor Rockin said last week, verses 1 to 3, walk worthy. Walk worthy of your calling. On what basis does Paul give that command to the Ephesians and to us? It's the basis of verses 4 to 6, the unity that we possess in the church. Now, most commentators, when they're linking verse 6 and verse 7, say, well, there's unity, but there's diversity. There's diversity of gifts, and that's true. It's there in the text. But I don't think it's the fundamental uh, thrust of the text, because what we see in verses 8 to 11, or rather 7 uh, to 11, and then 12 to 16, is the giftedness that Christ gives and the purpose of that giftedness. And the purpose of that giftedness is there in verse 16, that uh, we each part working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's not just that we're to emphasize the unity we have and then the diversity of giftedness, but rather being united one to each other in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that same Lord who gives a diversity of gifts to his church that are to be utilized by us for the building up of the body. There is unity in the Lord, and it is he that gives gifts to the church to further strengthen, to augment that unity. And central to the idea of giftedness in this text, not principally about us, central to that idea is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. We read of grace being given to us. That's something coming from outside of us, from the Lord Jesus. How is that grace given to us? We read again, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 8, we read, he ascended on high and did what? Gave gifts to men. Verses 9 and 10, we read of his humiliation and his glorious exaltation. And on the back of that exaltation, what do we read? He gave more gifts to the church. He gave offices to the church. 
And so we have to say when we're dealing with the concept of giftedness in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, we must conclude that these gifts are sourced, they are defined, they are determined and granted by Christ himself. And it's by the risen and ascended Christ that these gifts come to us. And we read of that risen and ascended Christ principally in verses 8 to 10. Look at verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then after that, a discussion of his descension, as it were, and then his ascension once again. But there in verse 8, we have a quotation, a quotation from Psalm 68. Turn there, if you will. It'll help you to keep a finger uh, in the page of Psalm 68 for a moment. So Psalm 68 is a remarkable psalm. It's a psalm of Christ's, Christ's triumph, victory over his enemies, his defending of his children, his ascension back to glory. It starts off with these words, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. And that sets the tone for the rest of the psalm. Verse 7, O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earthquake, the heavens poured down with rain, and so on and so forth. It's given you the impression that the whole psalm communicates to us that God is the warrior. He is the warrior on behalf of his people, wiping out the enemies, guiding his people to Sinai and thence beyond. We read in verse 17, the chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. A warrior that, that no man, no nation can match or defeat. It's on the back of verse 17 we read this. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. The rest of the psalm speaks about Christ's victory over his enemies and his procession into the glorious sanctuary. Now, perhaps you noticed a bit of a difference between Psalm 68, verse 18, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. And what Paul says there in Ephesians 4, verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. Psalm 68, he is receiving gifts from men. Ephesians 4, he is giving gifts to men. What's going on? Why the change? Well, before we get to that point, let's acknowledge what Paul and the psalmist are saying in common. They're saying in common, at the ascension, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, led a host of captives in his train. Psalm, uh, Ephesians 4, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. What's being said? Who are the captives? The captives are the nations. Psalm 68 makes that clear. He has victory over the nations round about him. Some of the nations, as in Psalm 68, 1 and 2, he's cut off. He's judged them. They've been found wanting, faithless. 
and he scattered them. As smoke is driven away, so shall you drive them away. He's cut off his enemies. But it also makes clear that he's gathering in the nations. He is gathering in, even as it says in verse 18, the rebellious. He's gathering in a people. That is to say, Psalm 68 is a prophecy of the, yes, the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he brings with him into heaven a people who were not his people, but who are now his people under his lordship, under his care. This is the host of captives, leading a host of captives in his train. People, his children, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue that he has delivered from the power of sin, and he, as it were, in his ascension, brings them with him into the highest heaven, into glory. You see, Psalm 68 is a prophecy here. Fulfilled by our Lord, Paul is telling us that in Ephesians 4, of the resurrection and ascension of Christ, which is the signal to the whole world that Christ is the victor. Christ is the victor. He's a victor over Satan. He's a victor over death. He's a victor over sin, and in destroying Satan, sin, and death, and all his enemies, he has delivered sinners from their power. It's a glorious picture if you read Psalm 68. These captives are who? It's us. It's his people throughout all generations, throughout all the world. Perhaps some of you know the old hymn with the words, Make me thy captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force us to render up our sword, then we shall more than conquerors be. It's a wonderful picture of Psalm 68. We are Christ's captives. We are his treasure. To use the language of chapter 1, we are his glorious inheritance. So why the difference then between receiving gifts and giving gifts? Psalm 68, verse 18, is before our Lord came. It's a prophecy of Christ receiving the spoils of war, the spoils of spiritual war, which are what? His people. And he takes us, his people, with him into the highest heaven. He received gifts from among men. All the spoils of that war. And yet Paul, in light of Christ's coming and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, interprets correctly the fullness of Psalm 68 verse 18. He's showing the redemptive historical fullness of what the psalmist meant, but could only see from afar. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, tells us what it really means. Yes, Christ did receive gifts from men. He received the gifts of men and women and children. And Paul says when he ascended on high, what did he do? He gave those gifts back. He gave those gifts to his church. He received a gift of his people and gives people as a gift. 
to the church. Now, just a quick note, I don't think we have the liberty to interpret Scripture as Paul does here. He's under the inspiration of the Spirit. We can't just go around turning, changing the meaning of words. But is it not interesting that the fullness of time God has revealed through the Apostle Paul, the Spirit, of course, we see a difference between the Old and New Covenants, Christ giving gifts to his people, sharing gifts with his people. We just sung of it in the previous hymn, that blessed doctrine of union with Christ, that we share in his gifts and graces. We confessed it also in our confession of faith. We have fellowship with him in his graces, in his sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory, and being united to one another in love. They have communion in each other's gifts and graces, and so on. We've just confessed everything I've said. We just sung everything I said. We share in Christ's victory because we're united to Christ in his victory. We share in the blessings of his ascension because we're united to Christ in his ascension. We say, yes, we share in his victory, but how did he achieve his victory? Verses 9 and 10, Paul's very clear. Paul speaks about the manner of this ascension or what came before that ascension. He says in saying, verse 9, he ascended, what does it also mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Seems a bit cryptic, doesn't it? But it's not really. What happened before Christ ascended? He descended. What happened before he went back to glory? He came down from glory. He was incarnated. And he was humbled in incarnation. And he was humbled in suffering and death. Our catechism speaks in this way. He endured the miseries of this life. The cursed death of the cross in being buried. That was the reality. The necessary reality, which was the prelude to this glorious ascension to heaven, He enjoys the glory of Messiahship because he was the Messiah. He came and lived and suffered and died for us. Without that work of humiliation, of descending, there is no glorification in ascension. Friends, we need to think on this. Our blessedness in And as the church was not easily won. It required the descension of the Son of God before his ascension. We heard this morning of Luther's Gethsemane. And Pastor Ockham rightly said that was nothing compared to Christ's Gethsemane. And that was nothing compared to the cross which our Savior then bore. He descended. His whole incarnation was humiliation for him, but especially his death and burial. Friends, 
This is the giver of the gifts to the church. This is the one who gives such glorious gifts to his church. That means, friends, because it was so costly. It was bought at such a high price. We ought to have great esteem for the giver, Jesus Christ. And we ought to have great esteem for the church, his church. But what are those gifts that he gives to the church? Verses 7 and verse 11. Verse 7 speaks of giftedness in a general sense to the whole church. Verse 11 speaks also of gifts to the whole church, but gifts that are seen in the peculiar offices of the new covenant church. More of that in a moment. The general gifts are found there in verse 7. It's by no means an extensive description of giftedness in the church. Paul says this, verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. He's going to speak in verse 11 of the peculiar gifts he bequeathed to the church in office, but now he speaks of the common gifts. He speaks here of we, the whole church, the giftedness that we find throughout the body of Christ. And there is a universality to these gifts. Notice that grace was given to each one of us. And that's important we understand that. Grace and giftedness has not been conferred to individuals uh, without reference to the whole. Uh, Giftedness is not just held by the special few in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see this next week, that the goal of giving all these gifts to all the members of the Church of Christ is there in verse 16, when each part is working properly, each part working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's one of the chief purpose statements of all the myriad of giftedness given to each member of the church of Christ. That is to say, no one may think that they do not need to serve the church of Christ for lack of giftedness. It simply doesn't work that way. Jesus doesn't gift 20% of his church with gifts. He doesn't gift 50%. He doesn't even gift 99%. He gifts 100% of his church with a diversity of gifts, all for the building up of the body. There is a diversity of needs in the church matched by a diversity of giftedness. In the early church, there were also special spiritual gifts. Uh, they were not equally conferred upon all. Uh, the ordinary gifts are the gifts that we might think of given to all of us. But giftedness we see is varied. Not everyone possesses the same degree of giftedness. We notice it's here. The giftedness is given according to the measure of Christ's gift. His desire, his design, and his donation speak to this measure of giftedness. Each member of the church of Jesus Christ is granted 
some sort of giftedness. And we ought not think that where we have a narrow field of giftedness. We can think about all the spiritual gifts. I'm not talking about the extraordinary ones of prophecy and so on, but all the duties that we are called to as Christians, hospitality, bearing burdens, and so on, we are all in some way to be functioning in those ways. We are granted differing gifts. Diversity of giftedness for a diverse church in all its need. Now, it's diversity of giftedness, not diversity of doctrine. It's not diversity of doctrine. Diversity, which is a bit of a byword today, is it not? Uh, is not a cloak for various teachings to come in the church or various agendas or various opinions. It's not diversity of so that we might promote ourselves, but it's for the promotion of the good of the body. Nor is it an opportunity for any of us to simply do what we think we might be good at. Remember what the proverb says, a man's gift makes room for him. In other words, instead of imposing your desired service upon others, perhaps we ought to let others seek that service out. So we ask ourselves, as the body of Christ, to whom each of us are all given various gifts, are we exercising those gifts for the sake of the church? Are we serving, not for our own good, but for the good of the body? We serve, you see, according to the mandate of Jesus Christ. And if I can borrow from former President Ronald Reagan, who I don't quote very often, though he had a lot of good things to say, he said this, there is no limit to the amount of good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. There's no limit to the amount of good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. Service in the kingdom ought largely to be hidden, certainly not promoted, at least not by yourself. Don't let, in a sense, the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Get on with it. Do it. Your Father in heaven who sees it will reward you for such. Yes, there is great giftedness in the body of Christ. Let each of us ask ourselves, are we using it as we should? But then in verse 11, Paul changes focus to the the, uh, unusual, the extraordinary, the offices of the church from general giftedness to specific. Now, we need to be clear, not all of these offices continue, and we'll come to that in a minute. The first two apostles and prophets uh, are the new covenant prophets of whom we've spoken before in Ephesians 2.20. Both apostles and prophets were used by God to reveal his will in an age when scripture was incomplete. Since completion, those offices listed in verse 11 have passed away. But what's important for us to understand here is that these offices then and the continuing offices are given by Christ to his church. We read this in verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above 
all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Out of this fullness, out of this glory, out of this victory, he has equipped the church generally in its membership with giftedness, and he has equipped the church specifically through its offices. That's to say the offices and the general giftedness are a gift from the risen and ascended Christ. We're to take these gifts very seriously. We read there in verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, and then goes on to speak about their purpose. We see these offices. Let's consider them. The apostles, those men who are called directly by Christ to a peculiar office for a peculiar time to be the foundation of the new covenant church. That's Paul's language used elsewhere in Ephesians. Martin Lloyd-Jones has three observations about apostles, which we do well to listen to in this day and age. First, he says, the office was appointed not by men, but explicitly by Christ. Not just the office, but the men to the office. Secondly, he notes, one of the qualifications for being apostle was that they must have seen the risen Lord. And thirdly, he notes that they were given supernatural revelation of the truth, that they could speak the truth inspired directly by the Spirit. So when we think about those three things, it immediately gives the lie to the Church of Rome uh, with their claims of apostolic succession after Peter and then through the papacy, and to some current churches which are claimed to be led by apostle so-and-so. Christ gave the apostle to his church for a particular period of time and with responsibility in the early church. Peculiarly, they were to give the revelation of God to the new covenant church in an age when scripture had not yet been completed. And we see their peculiar ministry met in scripture with a peculiar reward. If we turn to the book of Revelation, we're going to see what? We'll see the apostles' names written on the bejeweled foundations of the new Jerusalem, which is a picture of the church. They have a peculiar place in Scripture, a peculiar place, it seems, also in heaven itself. A temporary office passed away with the closing of the canon. Also a temporary office there is next, the prophets. We've already spoken of these in chapter 2, verse 20. These, again, are new covenant prophets, not the old covenant prophets. To them was also given a spirit of utterance from God. I think it's easiest just to see in Acts 11, verse 28, one of these prophets at work. Uh, verse 27, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. That's the nature of their prophetic utterance. It seems to differ from the revelation and utterance given to the apostles. They appear to be prophesying of spe specific acts or providences. 
Again, this office, we're told by Paul, is foundational to the new covenant church. Passes away when the canon of Scripture is closed. Just think about that for a minute. Two extraordinary offices given by the risen and ascended Christ in an age where they didn't even have the letter from which we are now reading. Let's speak to us of the wisdom of God, his good provision for his people. He simply didn't leave his people to get on with it while the New Testament was being written and read. No, he gave out of the goodness and the fullness of his ascended, powerful, glorious ascension, he gave his church these offices. Next comes the evangelist. Now, I have to say there's a lot of debate about this office amongst the commentators. Some, like William Hendrickson, believe that all the deacons of the church were also evangelists, and he bases that opinion on the fact that Philip was a deacon, but also we read that he was later named an evangelist. I'm not certain about that, but what I can say is that in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we see this office of evangelist as a continuing office, but we see it as a function of the ministerial office. Not so much, I think, a separate office, but a function of the ministerial office. So, for example, we've just ordained Matthew Izzell to the pastor of minister, but we've called him to be an evangelist. He won't be reordained as a minister. If it was a separate office, he would. He won't be reordained uh, because it's not a separate office. It's a function of the office of minister acknowledging that in certain circumstances and people with certain gifts, they are called and equipped by God to that work principally of evangelism. That's not an excuse for other ministers not to be evangelizing. It's simply an acknowledgement that some, in some circumstances, are gifted to that end. The final gifts we have here are shepherds and teachers, or some Uh, versions have pastors and teachers. Most agree, and I agree with them, that the shepherds and teachers here are one office. It's the office of minister. And there's reasons for that. I won't go into it, but the Greek grammar suggests that shepherds and teachers are one office. To shepherd the flock of God. That is to say, Christ on his behalf according to his wisdom, and sometimes, I'm sure we've all questioned the wisdom of doing this, but he's done it. He has appointed men to act on his behalf in the church to shepherd the flock. And along with ruling elders, uh, the, the teaching and ruling authority, there is that ruling function within the church of our Lord. And a teaching function also that there should be those who are set apart to teach the Word of God in a peculiar fashion. This speaks to us of Christ's provision. Christ the great shepherd, Christ the great teacher, how he continues to work now in his church through people in the church.
I think it goes without saying as we draw this together by means of application that these offices and the giftedness that is found in each member in the body of Christ, because they've been ordained by Christ and gifted by Christ, ought to be esteemed by all. And I'm not just saying the offices ought to be esteemed by all. It's a point that's in the text, but the giftedness of verse 7, the general giftedness, has just as much as the offices been appointed and gifted by Christ. We ought not denigrate the giftedness of the body of Christ. We ought not deny it. Of course, we don't always have to agree on what giftedness is, but nonetheless, we ought not denigrate the giftedness given to individuals and to the offices of the church. Christ has ordained them. Christ has gifted them. And this is Christ, the one we read, who fills all things, who has ascended far above the heavens. I'm not sure what that means. But but the fullness of Christ is beyond measure. And yet here he is in our lives, pouring out giftedness on the church. That is to say, friends, both the officers of this church and every member of this church ought to study how Christ may have gifted you. And you ought to seek then to use that gift to the glory of God, because Christ has given these offices. Christ has given this giftedness. Again, verse 16, so that we all might work properly. And when we work properly, the body grows. We build each other up in love. I'm stealing next Sunday's sermon. I've got to stop. You see, that's what's going on here. This is not just A setting themselves over a group of people or, or, or Mr. B over there thinking he can do everything. This is what Christ has given to his church. And we ought to honor and esteem that giftedness placed in the church. But by means of conclusion, just as we honor and esteem the giftedness given to the church, we ought to more honor and esteem the giver of those gifts, the risen and ascended Christ. You see, the purpose of this passage is not to exalt ourselves. We've not ascended yet, though in a sense we have. It is Christ. The purpose of these gifts is not that we might build a kingdom for ourselves. God forbid that any of us should seek to build ourselves a little kingdom within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will tear it down because this is his kingdom. You see, we remember that not by looking to ourselves, who are the recipients of gifts, but by looking to him who is the giver of those gifts. And as we look to him, we will see what he is doing in, for, and through the church as we look to him 
as we continue to look to him. And friends, we must continue to look to him until his second coming, that time where he comes again in glory and in power to judge the living and the dead. Until that time, let's serve. Let's serve the king. Let's serve each other. Let's pray. Father, we do bless you and worship you. We honor you. We cannot imagine, Lord God, the the beauty of Christ and the beauty of your church. Lord, we can scarcely comprehend the wonderful union between Savior and us. Bless us richly, we pray, Lord God. You are very good. You are very gracious. Help us to serve you as we ought. We ask all this in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.